Well, good morning. Hope y'all are all doing well this morning. Great to be with you. My name is Rob Sweet, one of the teaching pastors. If you're new with us, uh, something you'll figure out real quick about fellowship is we like teams. So we have worship leaders on team. We lead worship that way. We teach on team. So you have to visit with us about three or four times before you actually hear all the preachers that you'll get a chance to hear. And I'm one of those. Uh, this is my home base, uh, Fellowship Franklin this particular campus. So I'm here every week, whether I'm preaching or not. I've loved getting to know many of you. Look forward to getting to know those of you that I haven't really had a chance to get to know yet. Uh, I was sitting here in the front row, front row seat to um, what we just witnessed. And every time we do one of these child dedications, I'm, I'm struck by two things. Number one is how prolific of a body you are, if I could say it that way. We just keep having more and more kids, which is God's blessing. Uh, number two is the responsibility that we all carry, and, and I think the way that Eric led us in that was spot on to know that we are a family of faith, and although these children, God's given to these particular families to raise, uh, it's going to take, take all of us to gather around, and you know, I wasn't planning on saying this, but, but let me just say this as well. Um, we have, on an average Sunday, about 500 adults between the two services and roughly 300 children. Now, if you've been around churches a long time, that's a lot more kids than like we should have according to the ratios that you study in school, right? We should maybe have a couple hundred children. We have 300 kids on any given Sunday, and that takes a lot of work. Uh, we, we have something that we say every now and then here at Fellowship. It's something I want to say again this morning. If you're able to worship one, one hour on Sunday, serve in another hour on Sunday, we need you. Uh, we need the whole body to gather around. So if you're asking yourself, hey, how might I live out that pledge that I just said, besides maybe some free babysitting, uh, serving on Sunday mornings in our children's ministry, whether that's um, every week or on occasion as you're able to, would make a big difference in the life of our body. And I want to ask you to pray about that and consider that. So thank you for that. Well, open your Bibles to the book of Esther. This great story of Esther that we launched last week. We started in this series that take us through most of the summer. At some point in the summer, we'll transition over to another series. But uh, for the next couple of months, we're going to be in this story of Esther. If you missed last week, Lloyd Shadrach, one of our other teaching pastors, was here introducing the book. He did a tremendous job. And these first sermons of a series are so critical because they set the themes, they set the tone. And so if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go online on our website you can listen to Lloyd's message uh, on our website. And as you think about this book, and as you think about the story, which is essentially what it is, uh, the, the idea that we really wanted to focus in on with you is this idea of providence. And Lloyd did a terrific job, as I mentioned, of introducing this last week. In fact, in our little subtitle of this series, uh, we're, we're saying this. We're saying it's veiled providence, visible Faith. So this idea of veiled providence, this idea that God does things oftentimes, in fact, I would say most often, usually in ways that we're not even aware of. So one of the things Lloyd mentioned last week is if you think about the whole Bible, you think about all the people that encountered God in miraculous ways, those men and women were the exceptions by far. I mean, they were the 1% of the 1%. The whole other 99.9% .9 of godly people throughout Scripture never saw a miracle per se, at least something that they could say, yeah, I witnessed a miracle. Or They never saw or heard directly from God. And this is, for most of us, this is what real life looks like. And I think this is why we can identify with this book is because in Esther, God is, quote, hard to find. Yet he's really not. 
Now, he's really at work the whole time, but he's behind the scenes, if you will. Uh, So this is, as I've studied this book and read through it multiple times preparing for this series, this is how I've connected with it. And Lloyd said it this way last week. He said, God is today working out his purposes how he normally works out his purposes, quietly, oftentimes invisibly, but sovereignly. And that's the idea of God's providence. And, and so what that idea, that theological category of providence, that God is at work kind of oftentimes invisibly or behind the scenes, it infuses into life this core concept that everything matters. Right? Nothing, in essence, is by accident. Everything matters. And when you see your life begin to live out that way, everything matters, it changes the way you live, and that's where we're going to go in this book. Now, one of the most remarkable aspects of this particular book of the Bible is how well-written the story is. And there's lots of stories, lots of narratives in Scripture. This one, maybe above any other Old Testament narrative that I know of, is written in a way that only a master craftsman could have written this. We don't know who wrote the book of Esther. There's different theories out there, but we don't know. But what we do know is the person that wrote it was a master storyteller, a master narrator. Now, that doesn't mean that the events in Esther aren't historical. In fact, there's a lot of historical evidence that would lead us to believe that, yeah, this this is absolutely historical. I mean, we, we know the dates. We'll talk about this in a minute. We know the king. We know the city. We know the circumstances. All of it lines up. All of it matches up. So just because it's a great, well written story doesn't mean it's not also true. The example that came to my mind as I was thinking about it this week is the author David McCullough. Some of you may have read 1776 or John Adams, and he's written a number of books from American history, biographies and other stories. And he's won Pulitzer Prize uh, two times for two of his books. And if you read them, it's riveting the way that he writes, the way that he takes history and retells it in a way that you can put yourself there and identify it with the characters. And that's exactly how the author of Esther writes the story. Now this morning we're going to take a look at the opening scene. And just like the rest of the story, the writer here, it's an art form, the way he introduces the story. So think about a book you've read that you love, or a movie that, especially an epic movie that you really love. If you go back and rewatch it or reread that book, pay attention to the way that the opening scene comes into play. Because a writer who knows what he's doing is going to put a lot of intentionality into the opening scene because that's the moment that they're inviting the the viewer or inviting the reader to step into the world of the narrative. Right? Every story has its own world. It's got a setting. Right? It's got a time and a place. It's got characters. And the opening scene is when you are able to enter into, you know, go through that wardrobe, if you will, into the world of the story. And this opening scene is written masterfully if you pay attention to the details. The details matter. And there are a lot of details in these first nine verses of Esther, which we'll cover today. So let's jump in. I'm going to just walk through it verse by verse. In fact, several of these verses, I'm going to break up into multiple parts. We're going to dig in, point out the details. And then I've got two major points of application at the end that we'll get to in the latter part of the message. So Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just pick it up right from the beginning of the story. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus. Now let me pause right there. I'll just stop for a minute. Let's talk about this. We know from that very first phrase exactly when this story took place. 
Ahasuerus, or if you're reading from NIV or some other translations, it might say Xerxes, same guy. Xerxes is the Greek translation of this Hebrew name, Ahasuerus. It's the same guy. It's the Xerxes that you can study about in history. You probably did study about him in uh, high school history or college history at some point in time. We know that Xerxes ruled from 486 to 465 B.C., or the the nomenclature today is B.C.E., before the Christian era. So we've got a period of time that's very specific to history. We know that because Ahasuerus was on the throne. Now the Persian Empire will, in a minute, don't put it up yet, we're going to look at a map of the Persian Empire, but we know from a historical standpoint, this was the greatest empire up until that point of the time. We also know that during this time, the Jews were in exile. So this is, Lloyd mentioned last week, the darkest period, one of the darkest periods of ancient Jewish history. Let's keep going in the verse. The Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now let's put that map on the side screens for you to take a look at this. Massive, huge empire. You can see, uh, so from the, if you go to the east side, roughly all the way stretching over to India. Now, modern day, it's probably more like modern day Pakistan, but all the way over there on the east side, and then all the way over to the west side, stretching into Ethiopia, I mean, part of Africa. Um, Multiple, I think it's, I counted up about eight or nine time zones that's covered by this empire. The world had never seen anything like this. Uh, I'll give you a couple other statistics. About 480 million people. Now, by, by ancient standards, that's most of the whole world. 480 million people stretched over three continents. Now, as you look at this map, I want you to realize something. The little nation of Israel, the little city of Jerusalem, the places where you typically find the Bible, the setting of most of the stories in the Bible, is a tiny little dot on that map. In fact, you can see it. If you see the Great Sea, right, the Mediterranean Sea, if you look over at the east coast of that, you're going to see little dot for Jerusalem there. That's the nation of Israel. Now, the modern nation of Israel, which would have been fairly comparable to ancient nation of Israel, is about the size of New Jersey tiny little place. So immediately you see the contrast between this vast kingdom, this vast empire of Ahasuerus, and the little piece of land that God is most interested in. Isn't that interesting? Now, the story that we're going to be unpacking over the next two months or so takes place in Persia, in this Persian empire. In fact, we're about to get a little more specific. Look at verse 2. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. So now the narrator has zoomed in even tighter to a specific geographical location. Now, if you look on this map, uh, you see where it says in red across the center, Persian empire. Look a little bit south of that. You see the words Shushan. Shushan, that is a Hebrew way of, we would say, Susa. That's the city of Susa, that red dot that's underneath the Persian Empire. So we know precisely where this story took place. We also know that Susa would have been the home of the winter palace of the king. It wasn't the main capital of the Persian Empire. But Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, would have spent a lot of time. That's what we're going to read. He, he, would, he would celebrate there. He would party there. It was lavish. It was opulent. We'll get to all of that. Now let's talk for a minute about Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, from a human perspective. Everything was about him at this point in time. He was the man. 
Everything revolved around him. In fact, even in this story, you know how many times he's mentioned, either by name or in reference, he'll say the king or the king, or he'll mention him sometimes by name, 192 times. And by the way, there's only 167 verses. 192 times in this story, King Ahasuerus is mentioned. Life revolved around him. Almost literally. I mean, he was the center of the center of the center of the known world. The most powerful man at this point that had ever lived. And his kingdom stretched. You saw how far it is. Most of the known world. The text uh, details that he sat on his royal throne. Interesting, the images that we have of Xerxes depict him sitting on his royal throne. Let's see one of the images. We'll put that up on the side screen. Uh, You may have seen this image before. This is a carving that was done. So of course they didn't have photographers back then. They didn't really have portrait paintings, but they do have an image of him. Now, it's symbolic. He's always depicted on this royal throne. You kind of see that's common for the day. He's holding his scepter. That'll come into play later later in the story. In his left hand, he's holding a lotus blossom, which was very symbolic all the way back to Egyptian times. It it really related to a a divine, godly uh, creator influence. And back then, they would see their kings as deity. So you have this sort of God-man, which is the way that the Persian people would have seen Xerxes, or Ahasuerus. He's sitting on his royal throne. That was his identity. He's always connected with power, with authority. This was Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, identity. Well, let's keep going into verse 3. In the third year of his reign... Now we have even more specificity. So, I mean, think about this, how remarkable it is. This story took place, you know, 2,500 years ago, virtually, and we essentially know the exact year that the story of Esther begins to unfold. That's remarkable. We know the exact place. By the way, that Susa is in modern-day Iran, if you're curious. We know the exact place. We know the exact time. So the third year of his reign would have been about 484 B.C., In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. So here's what's going on here. Uh, Xerxes took over the throne from his father, and he has now had about three years to kind of settle in. And after three years' time, he throws this enormous banquet, this enormous party, and he invites in all of his rulers that rule under him, the, the mayors and the governors, to use our terms. He brings them in from the whole land. Historians guesstimate there would have been about 15,000 people in attendance at this banquet. Now, The 180 days, some people have wondered, how is it possible that 15,000 people would be there for six months? I don't think that's what's going on. I think what's going on is, over a six-month period of time, he invited them all in. So you can imagine, you know, one week, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever their weekends were back then, you'd have a, a group of 500 or 800 people. The next weekend, you bring another 500 or 800 people, and you keep rolling through. And after six months' period of time, Xerxes had celebrated... And we'll see later the kind of celebration that this was. He'd celebrated with 15,000 rulers, princes, uh, army generals, 
Uh, and, and many people believe during this time he was also planning for his uh, conflict with the Greeks, which if you know anything about history didn't go so well for him. So it's an interesting uh, idea that's happening here. We know exactly historically when it happened and, and likely what was happening. Now, the purpose of this grand event that stretched out over 180 days was what? The, the text tells us to display his wealth and his power. That was his whole intent. You know, when I thought about this, I thought about images from my childhood during the Cold War. You know, I was born in the late 70s, grew up during the 80s, and I remember watching on TV those parades where the Soviet Union would have these parades with all their military men, their missiles like rolling through the streets and their tanks and their soldiers. It's a display of power. He's flexing his muscles. We're seeing that even right now with uh, North Korea and other places. This is what... Ahasuerus is doing. He's proclaiming to his whole kingdom and any else outside of the kingdom that may still be outside of the kingdom, I have the power. Notice the two words that are used, glory and splendor. Who are those words typically reserved for? Not a man. Not a man. Reserved for God. Yet Ahasuerus throws a six-month banquet to display his glory, his splendor. Verse 5, when these days were completed, so the 180 days completed, the king gave another banquet. He gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now, I'm going to speculate on this part. I think what's happening here is it's been uh, an exhausting six months of partying. And Xerxes says, you know, I'm going to throw another party, this time for the people here in the palace that have been working so hard. And I says, I, I think, I believe it's a little bit of generosity. And we, we actually see that uh, reinforced in a few verses. You'll see that as well. I think the king is saying, all right, all, all of you from the greatest here to the least here, the ones that have been serving, the ones that have been a part of the six months, it's now time for you to have a party. And this is what's happening. Verse 6 gives us incredible detail of what this was like. And we'll talk about in a minute why the detail may have been there. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Now this was a picture of opulence that the world had never seen before. I think one of the reasons all the detail was given was this story was written for Jewish people, right? In years to come in Jerusalem and other places around Judea, and we'll, we'll see later why this story was written. It had a very specific purpose to it. These were people that had never been to Susa. These were for the Jewish people that had come back, and the whole point of the story was essentially to say, look how God has provided for us, even in exile. We're going to tell the story to our children and our great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and they still are to this day, by the way. We'll talk about that later. But it's creating a picture of opulence, of, of material wealth, that's actually ridiculous by human standards. Let me just give you an example. Um, Jody and I, earlier or last fall, we had a chance to get away for seven days, and we went to this resort in Mexico, and it was one of those places that has like the, the I don't know a better word to say than like the couches or the, the outdoor beds with the curtains that kind of flow down in the breeze, you know, and you just, you don't have to even go on the sand, 
right? You just lay on one of those places while you're getting your suntan or hiding from the sun or, you know, depending on what stage of life you're in, right? <laughs> now, picture that. This would have been an outdoor setting, but imagine that those sofas or those, those places where you would lounge around. By the way, they would lounge while they were eating. That was the custom in, in Persia at the time. Imagine that those would have been made from gold and silver. And then they would have had the cushions on top to make it comfortable. We also know that it goes out of its way to mention a color, right? You have the white, which would have been very common in that day, but then you have purple, fine purple linen. We take color for granted today, um, but it wasn't until the early 20th century until we had synthetic dyes. So all of you out there, I'm looking around, there's a lot of bright colors around. Um, I've got some folks wearing purple that I see. You know, before the 20th century, did you know it was only the wealthiest of the wealthy people that would have anything that was purple in color? Now, why was that? There were no synthetic dyes, so every color you had to extract from some organic material, and a lot of colors were much easier to make than purple. The only way to make purple, really before the, almost before the early 20th century, the only way to make purple was to go to the sea and find a certain type of sea snail. If you're curious, it's the Bolonus brandaris. Probably not saying that right. And this particular type of sea snail would extract a mucus when it got scared. And the mucus looked clear until it was exposed to the sunlight for a certain period of time. And when it was exposed to the sunlight for a certain period of time, would turn this beautiful color of purple. And that's how you would dye the garments. Now, let me put this in perspective for you. One ounce of purple dye cost 250,000 snail lives. One ounce. One ounce. So you can imagine how expensive, how ridiculous this is. So you're walking around at this party that Ahasuerus is throwing and you see this, this little purple little drape drifting down or even a purple cord as it's described. And You know, there should have been a little note on that. It said the production of this fine purple linen cost three million sea snails. Right? That's the idea. It's just ridiculous wealth, and he's displaying it all just because he can. Keep rolling in verses 7 through 8. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. This was an all-you-can-drink buffet. And you can imagine what kind of scene that created. In fact, next week when we get in the second half of the chapter, you're going to find out in a little more detail exactly what kind of scene that created. It would not have been a pleasant um, uh, scene at all times, for sure. Underneath this idea of the drinking was done according to the law, there was no compulsion, Underneath that is actually uh, another flexing of the king's muscles. And let me explain what I mean by that. You see, normally there was compulsion. Normally in that day, if the Persian king was drinking, you were drinking if you were in his presence. If he drank too much, you drank too much. If he didn't drink, you didn't drink. In fact, you know, what you do at the time was he'd lift his glass, you'd lift his glass. If he drank, you drank. If he paused in the middle of lifting his glass to tell a joke, then you pause as well and you laugh at the joke and then you kind of just do this number and wait for him to, and then you, you know, you drink when he drinks. In this particular time, the king said, by law, there's no compulsion. Drink when you want, drink how much you want. But you see, there was only freedom. There was only no compulsion because the king had made a law 
that there was no compulsion. You see how much control this man had. And if you can imagine, he controlled every sip of wine. Just think about how he controlled the rest of the lives of his citizens in the Persian Empire. He saw himself as the sovereign. There was no one like him. There was no one greater than him. Verse 9, we're introduced to our second character of the story. She'll come more into play next week. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. The palace belonged to King Ahasuerus. As you'll see next week, Vashti belonged to King Ahasuerus as well. Everything belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, we're going to pause there until next time. I just want to focus in on that setting. I want to focus in and see what we can learn, see what we can pull out of it, see what we can extract from an applicational standpoint. You may be thinking, I don't know what I can possibly use uh, as I live out my faith this week. I don't know how I can apply this particular set of verses this week, but it's kind of interesting. That's where you might be. Well, that's where I started as well. And then as I begin to dig in and think about how I can apply it, I think there are two major themes that are emerging, that the author is bringing our attention to even this early in the story that we can then apply to our lives. So I'm going to talk about a theme and then talk about an application and then talk about the second theme and then an application. That's where we'll spend uh, the next 10 minutes or so. Now, the first theme of the story, and it's, int- it's introduced here if you're paying attention, is the idea of the celebration of the king contrasted with a different celebration to come. The celebration of the king contrasted with the celebration of God. Now, where am I getting this from? Uh, If you don't know the historical context of the story, you can't pick up on this. But any Jewish person that has heard this story has heard this story every year of their lives, and they've heard this story every year of their lives on a particular day when they celebrate the festival of Purim. Lloyd talked about this last week. Purim, P-U-R-I-M, you've probably heard about it, is one of the Jewish festivals, and it specifically commemorates and celebrates the events of Esther. And in fact, when we get all the way to chapter 9, late in the series, you'll see that the author goes out of his way to say, this is how Purim started from this place, and this is why you're commanded to celebrate Purim, because God rescued his people from the evil intentions in this Period of time. So even to this day, the way that Purim is celebrated is with great feasting, with food, with drink, with generosity to others, the poor. That's how the Jewish people are instructed to do this celebration. So if you're a Jewish person hearing the story, even for the first time, way back when, you're thinking, oh, celebration of the king. I am listening to the story while I'm at a, a banquet of my own, but we're celebrating something very different. You see. So you see all throughout Esther, banquets keep popping up. It's a recurring theme. Esther's going to throw a couple of banquets. Later on, you'll see that. Now, why do banquets keep coming up? It's a theme of the story. So theme one, the celebration of the king, Ahasuerus, contrasted with the celebration of God. Now, compare and contrast with me these two banquets. So the king's banquet in chapter one and the banquet festival of Purim that will be established from this story. The same things being enjoyed in both food, drink, company of people you care about, enjoy, I'm sure laughter, some form of entertainment. The same things being enjoyed, but very different things being celebrated. What's being celebrated in the king's banquet? The glory 
and splendor and wealth of a man. Ahasuerus, Xerxes, what's being celebrated in the festival of Purim? The glory and splendor and provision of who? Of God, you see. So there's this contrast between the banquets. Now, what's the application for us? I had to dig a little deep on this because I thought about, all right, how, how do I tend to live out the good things of life? You know, good food, good friends, parties, luxuries. You know, what do these things mean to me? How do I tend to live into them? I think here's the application to you and me from this first theme. The good things in life are meant to glorify God, not ourselves. Good things in life are meant to glorify God, not ourselves. So when I say good things in life, I'm talking about whatever comes to your mind. What do, you, what do you enjoy eating? What do you enjoy drinking? What do you enjoy doing with your free time? What kind of entertainment? Right? Friendship, human relationship, comfort, food, drink. You ever tied this into worship? You ever thought about that before, that God created these things to be good, to be tasty, to be enjoyable, to be delicious? He created them, but not for our own benefit, but so the enjoyment would roll past the gift to the giver of the gift. This is how Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 10, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here's what I'm saying. There is a way to enjoy the pleasures of life, a good steak, you know, a chocolate chip cookie, Tex-Mex. There's a way to enjoy the pleasures of life that is more full and more complete than those who do not see them originating from the creator of all things. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm actually saying that a believer in God and someone who is walking in relationship with God, and we know that that comes only through Jesus Christ, a believer in God, walking in relationship with God, has a greater capacity to enjoy the good things of life than an unbeliever. Now, how is this possible? I'm not saying unbelievers can't enjoy a good steak and can't go to a good Tex-Mex restaurant and can't enjoy human relationships and all that that entails. They absolutely can, and it's pleasurable. But for them, the enjoyment, the pleasure terminates on the pleasure itself rather than transcending the pleasure to glorify the creator that gave the gift. Let me give you an example. Moving here to the Nashville area, uh, I got real fascinated by the Christian music scene. Right? I'd grown up listening to all these artists and all these music, and now they live right around here. And, and I'll never forget the first time I actually met someone who wrote a song that I really knew and loved. And I just kind of stumbled on a, a chance meeting and getting to know him. I'm a songwriter. Oh, you know, what have you written? Oh, I wrote, oh, you wrote that song? Wow, I just was listening to that on the radio coming over here. Well, he told me the story behind writing that song. I got to make a personal connection. You know what happened every time I heard that song afterward? I appreciated it more. I liked it more. You see, here, here's the principle. And this is the principle that I, I want to apply. Personally knowing the artist expands your capacity to enjoy the art. Isn't that true? Now think about the pleasures in life. Personally knowing the artist, the creator of the food. Now ultimately, God made everything that mankind has then mixed flavors to sort of join in that co-creation to create, but it all originates with God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. James wrote that. Here's the problem. We typically enjoy the pleasures of life like functional atheists, don't we? You see, we enjoy them, 
We benefit from them. Sometimes we overindulge in them, but we terminate the enjoyment of the gift on the gift themselves rather than rolling it past the creator, rolling it past the gift itself to the creator of the gift. Now, th- this can give you a whole new way to eat Tex-Mex. All right? I think I keep going back to that example because I'm getting hungry. <laughs> I'll eat breakfast in the morning when I preach. My stomach can't handle that. So I think Tex-Mex is on the radar for this afternoon. Now, here's, here's the thing. When you sit down to eat that meal, or you, you enjoy in, in intimate moments with your husband or your wife, or, or you drink in moderation to enjoy the goodness of God, or you go to a party, or, or you, you just look at a sunset, or the beautiful weather we've been having recently, you go for a bike ride, you take a swim in a cold, refreshing swimming pool, if you allow your mind to go to worship, you will enhance the enjoyment of the gift. And this is what we're called to do in all things. Drinking, eating, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's how you live out 1 Corinthians 10. And that's what the Jewish people are called to do in Purim. You see, you take the same things, food, drink, yes, in moderation, of course, but you apply this to worship and it changes the way that we deal with the pleasures of life. Now, why do I spend so much time on this? There has never been a people in the history of the world that have had so much luxury, so much entertainment, so much comfort at their disposal as you and me. And if we don't learn how to handle the pleasures of life in a godly way, we will get eaten up by them. They will dull our hearts, and we will simply become pleasure-seeking, comfort-seeking creatures without care or mind to the giver of the pleasures. We've got to have a robust theology to help us deal with the pleasures of life. And I think we find this here in this concept. Well, we could stop there. I want to move on to one more theme and one more application. So theme one is the two banquets being contrasted together and who they point to ultimately. Here's theme two, the so-called authority of man contrasted with the true sovereignty of God. Authority of man, sovereignty of God. Everything in this story, everything in history that's happening up to this point, all centers around Ahasuerus, but the author of Esther knows that he's not the one in charge. Providence weaves the web of God's sovereignty throughout this whole story. We're going to see that come into play. That's the point of the story. We talked about that before. Here's the irony. A flamboyant ruler going to exorbitant lengths to display his power and authority contrasted with an invisible God who has the true power and authority. You see it? Ahasuerus is like, look at my purple, look at my wine, look at my food. All the while, God is biding his time to guide the story according to his plan because he has the true power. He has the true wealth. I want to read to you from Psalm, excuse me, Psalm chapter 2 that captures this idea so well. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is going to happen in the story. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, capital S-O-N, 
that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Bill Wellens in his message last week at Brentwood took some time to compare and contrast King Ahasuerus with the King of Kings. And I thought it was worth reading to you for a few minutes this morning. Listen to how Bill wrote this. I thought it was so helpful. Ahasuerus had more gold and silver and land and possessions than any man before him, but the greater king owns it all. Ahasuerus ruled from Ethiopia to India. The rule of Jesus Christ goes beyond geographical boundaries. It spans the universe. The sun, the moon, the stars are at his command. Authority over every king and every nation and every people. Ahasuerus gave orders to control the actions of his subjects. The greater king sovereignly governs all things to his glory and our good. The laws of Ahasuerus were meant to manipulate, shame, and subdue. God's law is meant to show us the way to Christ that we might be justified in him. Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne for 22 years. Christ's reign is measured in millennia. Isaiah wrote, the government will rest on his shoulders and it will have no end. Ahasuerus was powerful. Many on this earth bowed to his authority. Jesus Christ made the heavens and the earth and one day every knee will bow to him. Ahasuerus was generous with his riches, but to bring glory to himself. Jesus Christ is lavishly generous with grace, giving his life for your life. We are impressed by Ahasuerus. We stand trembling in reverence at the glory of Jesus Christ. King Ahasuerus was, but now he is gone. Jesus Christ is and will forever be. Praise the Lord. Now what's the application for us? I think when you look deep in your own soul, each of us will find a little King Ahasuerus that desires control, that desires power just a little bit, desires a bit of sovereignty, maybe desires just the comforts and the pleasures that are mine, should be mine. Contrary to everything you hear today, human beings are not meant to rule as sovereigns, even of our own little small kingdoms. We weren't designed that way. What you hear, the, the defining narrative of our day in culture, um, everywhere, but maybe especially in, in our culture here in the United States, is that the highest level of attainment for a human being is freedom to being unfettered, not under anyone else's control, not under anyone else's rule and what the Bible would tell us over and over and over and over again are human beings were created and designed to exist under the authority, under the rule, under the commandment of the creator. And if that builds in you a little bit of resistance, know that that's your sinful self speaking to this because if you really had eyes to see and ears to hear, what you'd be reminded of right now is that you function best when you're under the authority of your creator. You flourish most, you come alive most when you're living life according to the commands that God has given us. That's just a truth. 
And if you've lived any length of period of time, you can look backward in your life and you just see that that's just true. You see, we were hardwired, we were designed by our Creator to flourish under the banner of God's sovereignty, under the banner of God's control, not out on our own as little sovereigns. So what must we do? Number one, all of us, repent of our own self-efforts to rule. And you may be thinking, I don't try to rule anything. You, you, you don't. <laughs> you don't try to rule your own little world. You don't try to control. You don't try to manipulate things. You don't try to keep bad things out and only good things in. You don't try to engage in relationship with others in a way that's even slightly manipulative so it goes well for you. We all do this. We all do this. Repent of our own efforts of self-rule and willingly submit to the true king's authority over us. I don't know how that can play out for you this week. I know for me, I'm going to try to wake up every morning with this simple prayer. Father, I exist under your authority and I will not act against your rule over my life today. Keep me from straying from your reign in my life this day. Am I going to live that out perfectly this week? No, you won't either. But I think a daily reminder that I flourish most when I live under the authority of my king is worth going to when I wake up in the morning. I want to encourage you. I want to admonish you as someone who cares for your well-being. Submit yourself to God's authority so that it will make, it may go well with you and so that you may glorify your Father above for it is for that purpose that you were created. We're going to close our worship service in a song, one more song we're going to sing together. This song is an opportunity for us to proclaim how great God is. And as you sing this song, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll think about, in a way, how puny Ahasuerus was. He's not around anymore. There's nothing existing. His palace is in ruins. His wealth is gone. He put on a purple shirt tomorrow that's brighter than anything he ever had. <laughs> in fact, it was ironic. We were sitting around the table, uh, four teaching pastors studying for this message, and between the four of us, we have six graduate degrees, and none of us knew how to even pronounce his name. <laughs> we had to look it up. Ahasuerus. But we worship the king who is alive and well. We submit ourselves to his authority and he will not control us for his own use. He reigns over us for our good and his glory. That's worth celebrating. Why don't you stand to your feet as we sing together this song and then we'll close out.